have no colitis symptoms. You can't cure colitis. Like you can't cure diabetes. The term that's used is reversal or like indefinite remission, but I've had no symptoms of colitis um, since starting a ketogenic diet. Technically, I don't have osteoporosis by definition anymore. Welcome to You Cured What? The podcast of reversing the irreversible. This is where you hear how real people are healing from conditions that most people think they're stuck with for life. I'm your host, Joe Kalb. If I had to give you some medical advice, I'd go to medical school and get a medical degree. Seriously, nothing in this podcast is medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute as such. Now, enjoy the You Cured What? conversation. My guest today is young, but already has a fascinating history. A star endurance athlete, at age 17, he became the youngest time-qualified runner for the 2014 Boston Marathon. However, by age 20, he was diagnosed with eight different bone fractures and with osteoporosis. And at age 22, he was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Since then, he has managed to greatly improve his health. Oh, and on top of all that, he's also an Ivy League valedictorian. He is finishing up his PhD at Oxford studying neurodegenerative diseases, and he will be attending Harvard to get his medical degree after completing his PhD. What a background, and what an honor to have him on. Welcome to the You Cured What podcast, Nick Norwitz. How are you doing today, Nick? Great. Thank you for that very generous intro. I'm excited to be here and to chat. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. And, you know, I, I called out a couple things from your background there in that intro. Um, you know, you were a, a really um, proficient runner, a really good um, endurance runner. Can you give us a little bit of background into your history as um, as an endurance athlete and um, and you know kind of what it what it took to become the youngest time qualified um, runner yeah. for the 2014 Boston Marathon? So as a kid, as an adolescent, and as a, a young adult, I was always and have always really been into my sports, and I kind of jumped around. I did martial arts for over a decade. I did it push-up competitions, then I got into running. And it was something that I was just kind of built for, and I really enjoyed it. I'd also grown up um, right up, so Boston Marathon is a pretty famous marathon, as marathons go. And I grew up right on the course on a famous turn near Heartbreak Hill. And so it was always a dream of mine to do this one particular event. And um, you have to be 18 years old to run a major marathon, which Boston is. So um, I was going to be 18 in 2014, so at 17 I could time qualify. So I, I, um, I just trained really hard for that. And I did that fueled by what I thought at the time was a healthy diet, you know, standard guideline type stuff. Um, low fat, lots of meals, lots of carbs. And, um, I was training for the Boston marathon about six weeks before the race. I got my first fracture and, um, everything kind of just went on from there for a, a couple of years until I was diagnosed with osteoporosis. So that was my first diagnosis and it was just kind of tough because I always loved my sport and I kind of saw it like, you know, 
um, getting away from me. And it hasn't been something I've been able to return to, but uh, gained some other things instead. So that was strike one, osteoporosis. And then, uh, as you said, strike two came down the line, uh, the ulcerative colitis. Um, so... Okay, and um, how old were you when uh, when you were diagnosed with colitis? Colitis was 22. Uh, it was at the end of college. Often these diagnoses, especially in young, healthy people, take a while to uncover. The osteoporosis especially, I was refused bone scans, like basic DEXA scans, which are pretty easy to get, for multiple years. And I got more and more fractions. They're like, no, you're young. You'll, there's no way you have low bone density. And I had to get a really weird fracture in my foot before they finally gave me a bone scan after two years, said I had osteoporosis. It was the same with the colitis where you kind of struggle for like a year, don't know really what's going on. And then finally somebody does, you know, the procedure that needs to be done and then you get diagnosed. So colitis is a little bit weird because why would it develop? It usually does develop in the young 20s. That's pretty typical. Although a lot of the things that set the stage for it, these microbiome insults, so you heard about the microbiome, the guts that live in your, in your, the bugs that live in your gut get set up way ahead of time. So I had risk factors, for example, when I was, you know, the diet I ate as an adolescent, but even when I was a neonate infant, um, I had a really high fever. And so they gave me IV antibiotics. This was before I was one years old. It turns out if you get antibiotics before you're one, it increases the chance of getting um, ulcerative colitis like in your 20s about 500%. So it's oh. not really clear what sets the stage, but it's it's a strange thing that these things kind of do tend to onset a little bit later, or at least ulcerative colitis. Okay, so at twenty two, um, at twenty two, you were you finally got that diagnosis, but it sounds like uh, maybe the stage had been set um, earlier. Um, I, so what um, what type of diet, like in your your running days, and you qualified for? the Boston Marathon, uh, you mentioned it earlier. You mentioned kind of low-fat, yeah. eating um, lots of meals. Uh, what did your diet consist of at the time? Just like mountains and mountains of fruit, sweet potatoes, eating five times a day, cliff bars, things that were marketed as healthy. I was kind of pseudo into nutrition. You know, I didn't read the literature, but I was, you know, reading media posts and getting educated uh, that way. Um, uh, my diet overall through my adolescence was in retrospect, not very good. Um, fake good. Like, like, um, I'll, I'll, I'll paint you a picture. This is what I ate when I was in fifth grade. So a little like 80, 90 pound kid. Um, I would wake up and eat about a half a box of special case cereal, which is like on the TV is healthy, you know, has like the little dried strawberries in it, but I ate half a box, um, (laughs) which is, you know, and then I, I go to school. They have some like donuts in home. Everybody was eating donuts. So I'd pick a couple of jelly donuts. They're my favorite because they were fruity. Yeah. Thought nothing of it. <laughs> then at lunch, just eat with my friends. ate, you know, the pizza, French fries. Maybe I get a soda and ice cream sandwich. Come home, eat the other half box. Uh, special K. Again, it was a diet cereal. So it was healthy. Go to oh. soccer practice. After that, get a long at subway the the tuna salad with like all the processed seed oil mayos but but it was tuna it was fish um snack at home and then literally before i bet i'd have uh, a a little like package of craisins so i thought that was really healthy this this is just an example of one of the things i thought was healthy it's like it's fruit right and my parents also thought it was healthy they're both md phds this is just kind of goes to show the 
um, maybe lack of understanding, lack of uh, uh, knowledge around nutrition. But um, it, it had 132 grams of sugar. And I would eat that in bed right before going to bed. Wow. And so that was the sort of diet I ate. And I was never anybody that had weight issues. And at least I was, you know, always a skinny kid. So it, it, I didn't have a canary in the coal mine. It didn't flag. But years of eating like that and fueling like that. Now we were talking about my running. I know I'm rambling here. But um, I had a ton of energy. Obviously, a ton of glucose always running through my body. And I just felt like a Ferrari. But it wasn't like my engine was a Ferrari. It was like I was dumping terrible gasoline into a crappy engine or if there was like a, you know, you opened up a Ferrari's hood and there was a little like candle trying to fuel it. I think everything was just like teetering. And then when I turned um, 18, the bones started to go and then the gut followed and everything just kind of fell apart because my underlying metabolic health was just really bad since my nutrition wasn't very good. Wow. Um, so which which uh, bones were you fracturing when you started? Uh, you said you had eight total. Is that right? I've had m- at least. So the first fracture was in my tibia, which just, um, and then they kind of started developing as I was trying to retrain. So this is the weird thing that I never got any fractures until 18. I had no family history, but I started getting fractures when I was 18. And then the threshold to fracture as my nutrition was pretty poor and I have some odd genetics, excuse me. Um, the, the, the threshold of fracture started to get lower and lower. So first I had to run hundred miles per week to get a fracture. And then it was like 60, then it was 40, then it was 20. And in the end, after two years, I, I ended up breaking this bone in my foot called the cuneiform, this blockish bone. And it's and doing a 5k in a try a tri- a sprint triathlon. So just three miles. Um, quickly to go back and answer your question, tibia, femur, spine, ribs, knee, feet, everywhere. But, um, this, this cuneiform was the break that, um, or cuneiform was the break that got me the diagnosis because I went to a foot doctor and he's like, I've been doing feet for 40 years. I've never seen someone break this bone. How'd you break this bone? You don't have an anvil on your foot. And I'm like, no, I just ran a 5k. He's like, oh, I'm like, can I finally get a bone scan? He's like, I guess. And wow. so then they did the scan and, and not to my surprise, but to, to the docs that my um, T and Z score, which is kind of how you me- measure relative bone density to your population was over three standard deviations below normal, um, which is like the bottom 0.03%. So that wasn't very good. And considering that a couple of years before I could run say 3000 miles in a year without any problems, you could tell the, the decline was pretty precipitous. Um, that would be a very alarming, um, yeah, alarming change and a painful, um, a lot of pain I assume was associated with that. And yeah. were the, was there a lot of pain with those fractures? Physically or, oh, um, I have a pretty high pain tolerance, um, goofy story. And this just shows how blindly like a, really addicted I was to running. Um, so when I, when I broke my, my, my tibia before the Boston Marathon, it was weeks before, and I, I, I just wanted to do it so badly that I petitioned. And I had to petition because this was the year after the terrorist bombings. So they wouldn't let you take anything bigger than, like, you know, tiny size onto the, the course. But I, I petitioned the, the, the lead of the Boston Marathon to let me bring a pair of standard metal crutches onto the course. So I, I actually did the 2014 Boston Marathon on crutches, which was wow. 
an interesting day. I got sunburned and I learned that friction can activate shingles virus because I got shingles activated under my arms. So, Oh no. Let's talk about pain. Medically, it was not advisable. It was one of those things that you just, (laughs) it was a fond memory. I wouldn't do it again. I don't advise (laughs) it, but um, yeah, I was really into running and, Wow. So So you completed the Boston Marathon on crutches. Is that? Yeah. um, Yeah. It was a long day. Uh, It was a fun day. I started off faster than I finished. (laughs) I finished. I just dropped dead at the finish line. They carried me to the med tank, gave me potato chips. And then my, we were one, we were one mile away from one of my favorite restaurants uh, in Boston. So my, bro- my, my sister and my dad literally carried me one mile and we just sat down at the restaurant and I just, just ate and then I slept. Um, wow. It was a little bit painful, but um, that, that, was the, that was the spirit of the, the environment, Boston Strong and post-terrorist bombings. It was just, it was something um, that I mean, that in and of itself is an inspiring story that you were able to complete that despite those fractures and despite the crutches. Um, You're putting a positive spin on it. You could equally cast it as a young person's stupidity. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, it, is, it was a fun story. Yeah, that um, that is really cool. And um, you know, you mentioned you kind of you spoke about them almost together, like the the bone health and then the gut health. You know, you talked about maybe a couple years or a yeah. few years after, um, you know, after the fractures started to occur, um, you know, you started having gut health problems, which ultimately led to that ulcerative colitis um, yeah. Uh, diagnosis. Yeah, I don't have a direct connection as in, like, you know, I was, if say you had ulcerative colitis first, you're taking corticosteroids, that affects the bones. But, um what I've come to learn through looking at nutrition and, um, and just, you know, these chronic diseases in general is that, you know, diabetes, heart disease, ulcerative colitis, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's, they all come down to like basic underlying pathologies of disease that are all contributed to by things like poor nutrition and poor lifestyle. Um, so I think there's a, a looser connection. Now there cert- certainly is like a gut bone and a gut brain there are those axes so there probably is a more concrete connection but often you don't actually figure out exactly what that is so i think more or less it just has to come down to having your health starting with nutrition um in order in fact if i may nerd out for a minute there was a really exciting paper i think i posted on twitter i don't know if you saw the post um uh that came out recently in cell um may 28th so within within the last month and one of the things that we're showing is insulin resistance. One of these pathologies I was talking about, um, so it's like insulin resistance, oxidative stress, et cetera. Insulin resistance, which is associated with being overweight, blocks a lot of the really positive effects of exercise. It, it blocks huh. them. In fact, some things like you've heard of autophagy, right? The healthy yeah. thing people talk about associated with fasting. Well, there's something similar, another cellular cleanup process called the um, ubiquitous, ubiquitin proteasome. Another, another cleanup process in cells. And when you exercise, and healthy people, that goes up. The activity goes up to help repair muscles and recover things, recycle things. But if you're insulin-resistant exercise, exercise, the activity actually goes down. So there's a lot of these things where the, um, at least in exercise, the positive response is, say, would be reversed if you don't have the proper underlying 
like metabolic health. Um, so this kind of might have been an operation with me a little bit. You can be thin and healthy and be insulin resistant. And um, I'm, the thing I'm trying to get to is I do think that there is a central underlying component of nutrition just contributing to all these diseases. That makes sense. And I do think, I think it's worth um, calling out that again, yeah, you were thin and, you know, athletic and you still had these, um, you know, these issues. So a lot of people might have um, looked at you and thought like, oh, like, you know, very healthy, but, um, you know, your, your gut was still having trouble. Yeah, I would. I don't have statistics on hand, but I'd be really interested to know what the rate of, I guess, what you could call invisible illnesses are among the population. No, obesity is a disease, but there are so many people struggling with colitis, Crohn's, IBS, depression. And um, just like obesity, these things come down to proper lifestyle and nutrition. And so it's, it's, a, it's almost a ubiquitous problem. I think the vast majority of people um, struggle with these kind of things. So, um, I'm not unique in that sense. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, leading up to, you know, something took you in when you were 22 to the doctor to get the ulcerative colitis, um, diagnosis, what was going on in, in your life and your health, um, that led up to that? Yeah, it was just, at the end of college, it had been going on for a while. And to get uh, a proper diagnosis of ulcerative colitis, you have to get a procedure called a colonoscopy, which is not a very fun procedure. <laughs> um, you have to, you know, fast for a little while. They give you stuff to clear you out, and then people stick a camera up your butt. <laughs> uh, that's basically what they do uh, to see if there's actually inflammation in the colon. So you can diagnose colonoscopy or Crohn's and, sorry, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and differentiate that from irritable bowel syndrome, which doesn't have a concrete pathology that people can like point to and say, oh, look, we see inflammation in your colon. So it it just took a little while in part uh, to warrant getting that. But after you struggle with uh, the symptoms of those diseases for a while, which include, you know, terrible things, bloat, you get ulcers in your stomach opening up, and then you get blood passing out your your back door. Mm which is not fun. So uh, I got the diagnosis at the end of college um, before moving to Oxford, and then things took a turn for the even worse. Um, a couple weeks after moving to Oxford, so this was Ox- this is Oxford, England, where I was starting my PhD, first time living really by myself, and I was in a new country. In a couple weeks, I had a really bad ulcerative colitis. They call them flares, when the inflammation flares up. And um, one of the reasons it flared up, I might add, uh, or one of the reasons I would conjecture it flared up is that I get there and at the, I'm still communicating with my doctors in the U.S. And one of the things they're saying is, oh, for your bones, you probably should eat more calories because maybe you have something called relative energy deficiency, um, which didn't really fit my profile. My BMI was 21. I was pretty healthy. I you know, was eating like I could drink a jar of Nutella, no problem. So then I started pounding down when I got there. There was like a fudge shop next to me because my doctors were literally say, you know, like, did you get your pasta five times a day? Did you, you know, have your ice cream and fudge? You know, you're trying to, to, to gain some weight, um, maybe to help your bones. which It certainly wasn't. Um, but then I had a, a colitis flare within a few weeks of moving to Oxford, lost about 20 pounds in a couple of weeks and ended up 
in the palliative care, so the death ward of the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford with a heart rate that was in the 20s. Um, So that was kind of a wake-up call for me. It was at that point where I'm like, okay, what I'm doing is not working. I need to find another solution. And it's not that I didn't have an amazing care team. I mean, I had what some would consider some of the best doctors in the world, but um, the advice they gave, were giving me wasn't helping. So I, at that point, you know, when I, when I felt like I was on death's door, finally took it into my own hands and started really looking into literature and what might be going on. And then I kind of found my way to nutrition. Okay. Uh, so that's, so, um, you know, what did, what was your, uh, path like there as you did dig into the literature uh, did you have any like false starts before you, um, you know, found something that worked for you? Uh, yes, health was very iterative. I had many a false start before. So, to spoiler alert, what I ended up finding that helped me was a ketogenic diet, and we'll we'll talk about that in a bit, I'm sure. But um, I tried every diet you could imagine beforehand for my colitis. I tried, you know. Um, pescatarian, vegetarian, specific carbohydrate, low FODMAP, paleo, XYZ, everything. Probably about a dozen different diets. And I was, because of everything I knew, now your listeners can't, I know we're going to do audio, but I'm doing air quotes new, um, (laughs) about nutrition, I thought, you know, ketogenic diet, high fat, this is stupid. This is like so bad for me, I would never do it. I found my way there out of desperation. So like, you know, after I've been trying some diet stuff before the, um, the scare in the hospital and then I tried a couple more afterwards. And then I was reading some stuff about keto and inflammation, maybe for gut health. A couple people were saying I should try it. Many more were saying definitely don't, but I was at the point <laughs> where I was, I was like, I have no expectations, but I also have nothing to lose. So what the heck? I might as well give it a go. Um, and thankfully, I did find a really uh, supportive doctor, the doctor who's become a really good friend of mine since um, in Massachusetts who, who supported me trying this diet. And so um, the, rem- the change was, was quite amazing. Um, within, so, so a marker of inflammation that's used for colitis is called calprotectin. And generally, if your levels are below 50, I'm not going to give the units, but just say below 50, it's considered kind of normal. If it's like at 50, that you have some inflammation, but it's not, you know, freakishly high. My levels were about 150 um, for trying the diet. So about three times high normal. And that was pretty typical. At the time, I was on multiple drugs, anti-inflammatory drugs as well. So things like mesalazine, I had tried even, you know, corticosteroid enemas. So you put steroids in your butt. It was not fun. Um, <laughs> And I started the diet, um, and I started feeling better in about a, just a few days. Um, and about about a week's time, I was feeling very good. And so I I, I, I talked to my gastroenterologist and said, "Can we recheck my calprotectin? I'm just wondering what it's doing." And he said, "No, it's probably not worth checking right now. I believe your symptoms are feeling better, but the inflammation doesn't tend to go down that fast. It will lag. It tends to lag behind the, um, you know, maybe symptom improvements if you are going into remission." I'm like, "Well, can we please check it? I was home at the time, and we, I was about to go back to doctors. Like, well, you're about to go back to England. It's easier to get here. If it makes you feel comfortable, let's get it." So 
remember a week before, I, just before starting the diet, I was at 150, which is three times high normal. Starting the diet, a week later, symptoms better, and we check it again, and my levels are at 20. They've gone from 150 oh. to 20, and now they're well below like the threshold for inflammation um, detection. And so that was quite remarkable. And so they kind of stayed there. I went back to Oxford. They stay low. I didn't have any colitis symptoms. And they just kept on staying low. And there was a point in time when I like forgot to take med. And then I kind of titrated my meds down. And then I came off my meds. And still the inflammation stayed really low. And just like a year later, it just hadn't bumped back up. And it's never, ever, except for one time when I gave myself poop poisoning. But that wasn't <laughs> the colitis. Um, it's never come back up. And now I'm off all meds. I have no colitis symptoms. You can't cure colitis. Like you can't cure diabetes. The term that's used is reversal or like indefinite remission. But I've had no symptoms of colitis um, since starting a ketogenic diet. And, and how long has that been? <laughs> um, people who talk to me think I've been doing this for a long, long time because I've really, really gotten into it. But it's been a year. I started June 1st of last year. Um, but since then, it's been everything I do, you know, with regards to my studies. I read like 10, 20 papers a day. I've read thousands by now and published in the peer-reviewed literature, like at least five articles on a ketogenic diet. I find it so interesting. And now working with people, realizing I thought it was an astonishing thing. I am not a unique story by any means. I've talked to so many people who have cured like things like schizophrenia, depression, like, like brain, literally brain cancer. A friend of mine, Andrew Scarborough, like thought he has stage four brain cancer. Um, and he developed his own form of a, you know, paleolithic ketogenic diet, he called it. And, you know, these things tend not to be at this point in time in the peer reviewed literature for a couple of reasons. Um, but you can't take away when you really meet these people from their anecdotes. And I like to say the plural of anecdote is data. So, um, after meeting some people, you just realize how powerful a well-formulated, emphasis on well-formulated ketogenic diet can be for a myriad of conditions, not just obesity, which is, you know, where it's popularized. I, I agree completely. Um, the ketogenic diet is one of the, um, big things and seeing the results, um, it's one of the big things that inspired me to just want to get the word out there and, um, you know, do this podcast. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear about the success that you've had with it and that you are studying it so passionately now. Um, and I, I do want to get back to your studies, but I also want to, um, want to know, um, you know, for any listener out there who isn't familiar offhand with the ketogenic diet, um, I wonder, would you be able to, one, give a, um, give a, just a little bit of background on what a ketogenic diet is and two, um, what your version of the ketogenic diet, like what foods do you focus on? Um, sure. you know, are there any specific, um, yeah. things that you do with your, your version of it? Yeah. So first I want to, I, I always like to look at things in the light of evolution. So let's start with that. I'm going way back just to kind of explain first what ketones are, then we'll talk about a ketogenic diet. So what is a ketone? A ketone is a, a molecule that your liver makes from your fat. 
um, to fuel your brain, more or less. So when we were evolving, food wasn't around all the time, especially glucose or carbohydrates, which get turned into glucose. And the brain, it's a pretty picky eater as far as organs go, but it demands a lot of fuel, about 500 calories per day. Um, and um, if glucose isn't around, then to get glucose, your, your body actually needs to break down your muscle tissue. And so if your brain really needed to depend 100% on glucose, then you wouldn't be able to go very long without eating, and we would have died. Our species would never have survived. You'd just eat your body up very quickly. Your brain would. Um, so we kind of needed an alternate source of fuel for the brain. Um, and so what humans became really good at doing is turning our fat into a, uh, a fuel for the brain called ketone bodies, which ended up, you know, being a, uh, a much better source of fuel for the brain. They generate uh, more efficient energy. I won't go into redox spans and all that, but they're, they're more efficient. Um, I, I guess you could, the, the thing I like to analogize it to is like your brain running on glucose is like a Hummer H1. It's kind of dirty, a little bit slow. Your brain running on ketones is like a Tesla Roadster. It's much quicker, more efficient, and a lot cleaner. You don't generate a lot of waste. Um, in fact, uh, uh, my group at Oxford um, recently published a, a paper in PNS showing that standard diets and glucose decrease um, something called brain network stability, which is a new marker of brain aging. So that, you know, standard diets decrease this marker of brain aging, whereas um, ketogenic diets and ketones themselves actually increase it, showing the ketones are very good for the brain. So point being, ketones evolved because humans, or ket our ability to make more ketones than other animals evolved because humans have really big brains, and we need to fuel those brains. That's what a ketone is. Um, and we can kind of tie that back into neurodegenerative disease, which is my academic interest later on. But um, yeah. that's why humans are really good at making, making ketone bodies, which we generally make during periods of fasting when we're not eating because you can derive it from your fat, um, your body fat. But really, it's just when you deprive your body or when you have less glucose. You don't, I'm not, I shouldn't say deprive because glucose is a non-essential nutrient. Your body, well, your body makes all the glucose it will ever need. It can make it from various sources. Um, so a ketogenic diet now, transitioning to ketogenic diet, is a diet that's really restricted or low in carbohydrates and much richer in fat as a proportion of calories. And it has a, a moderate amount of protein. So if you break it down calorie-wise, a standard ketogenic diet would be about 75% fat, maybe 5% net carbohydrates. So you can subtract the fiber. There's controversy over that, over that, but I, I argue definitely that you can subtract the fiber, and then about 20% protein. And um, you, and I think I as well, um, were saying the ketogenic diet. But something I really want to point out is there is no the ketogenic diet. It's ketogenic diet's just about your macronutrient breakdown. You can really get those macronutrients from anywhere. So actually, the main question I get when I'm working with, say, new clients on a ketogenic diet is. Um, you know, but I don't like like red meat. Do I have to have red meat? Some people love red meat and bacon, but they're like, I don't really want red meat and cheese. I'm like, then don't. Like, it doesn't matter. Have salmon, have avocado, macadamia nuts. You can break it down any way you want. And for a lot of my time, you were asking about my kind of diet. I've been doing a Mediterranean style ketogenic diet just because those are the foods I like. like lots of olive oil and avocado and salmon and sardines and fish and not much red meat and cheese. 
So you can really kind of hack it any way you want. It is not, I think people hear keto and they think like, oh, it's like beef jerky and cheese whiz. <laughs> that's that's how it's portrayed in the media. That's what that or by a lot of the media, and that's why it's portrayed as unhealthy. And I think that's a little bit unfair. You could analogize it to like saying, "Oh, you know, vegan diets are unhealthy because you only eat Oreos." It's the same thing. It's like, well, yes, an Oreo only diet is unhealthy, and yes, it's vegan, but that doesn't capture the scope of a vegan diet. I'm not saying a vegan diet is healthy. I'm just saying it's an analogous situation where you you can actually build keto any way you want to fit your, fit your taste preferences, which is kind of fun. And you really get to indulge in it too, because you get to eat a lot of rich food. It's actually a really pleasant diet, I would argue. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree from, uh, from my experience that it's a very pleasant diet. Um, and I want to, um, I want to dig back into some of your academic interests now. Mm. And I think it also ties into, um, you know, a personal tie that you have. Um, you mentioned um, when we were talking before this that you have the ApoE4 gene. Am I am I saying that correctly? Yeah. So um, when I was trying to figure out what was going on with my bones and my colitis, I got my whole genome sequence. Not like a 23andMe thing, but like all 3 billion base pairs. And one thing that really jumped out, which scared me quite a bit, was that I'm homozygous, which means I have two copies, not just one, of a gene form or an allele called ApoE4, which is the main genetic um, risk factor for what is, for some reason, always been my greatest fear, um, Alzheimer's disease. So that kind of shook me a little bit. It was coincidental because it didn't inspire my interest in neurodegenerative disease. I was already at Oxford doing a PhD in neurodegenerative diseases. And I get there, and shortly afterwards, I find out I'm in the 2% of the population that are homo- that's homozygous for this, this gene, putting me at like about an 11-fold increased risk of Alzheimer's. In fact, if you have poor metabolic health, I would say it's almost a sure thing. So then I started really, you know, I, mean, I made the research very, very personal for me. And I got all into, you know, looking at nutrition for brain health. Um, so that has become my academic passion. And that's one of the reasons I kind of trend towards this intersection between Mediterranean and ketogenic, because there's great research on ketogenic diet for Alzheimer's and great research on Mediterranean. So I'm like, why not find the intersection? Um, so that's kind of where I'm sitting, particularly because of my genotype. I'm actually experimenting with a carnivore diet now, I'll be perfectly honest, but, um, I don't know how long that'll last. I'm using it for, um, although I, I've, I've done well with colitis, I still have um, IBSC, which is IBS uh, constipation, and so the carnivore diet, I've um, got some ideas that, that might be good for, and it seems to be helping. So it, I, I think of health generally as like a, 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 a never-ending journey, and so I'm always experimenting on myself, even if in the acute setting, it's not always maybe the best for my health. And I don't know if this will be. I'll do the metabolic yeah. test to find out, but um, uh, anyway, uh, that's tangential. Um, that's where I'm oh, well, sitting, and that's my story. I um, I can definitely see that as a valid approach. A lot of people refer to a carnivore diet as being the ultimate elimination diet. Hmm. So if you're looking to eliminate potential triggers of um, inflammation or just anything in your gut, that a lot of people have found a great yeah. deal of success with that. 
I tend to agree. I mean, it's an issue with elimination as much as it maybe be great for gut health is you also potentially eliminate some really important things for the body and brain. So like right. things I emphasize even now on my carnivore diet are things like um, salmon caviar, which is a great source of uh, the best form of omega-3 fatty acid called lyso-DHA. It's the form that's best able to get to the brain. And DHA is um, it's an omega-3 fatty acid, and it makes up about 30% of the brain. So it's really important. So if you do a carnivore diet that's only meat and you're deprived in DHA, I would guess that it's probably not the best for your long-term health, even if it makes you feel better. And, you know, not taking away from people like Michaela Peterson or, or anything, um, because what she's done is amazing. But I think there is always tweaking to be done. So on that point. Yeah, I, I like the way um, you look at things as um, being kind of a, it's about the journey. There's not a specific destination where you reach, hey, I've hit good health now. And that's, you know, I will do yeah. this forever. It's not about approaching a zero point. It's not like you can only go negative. Like I have this disease and I lose X number of points and then you want to get back to just zero. It's just <laughs> a big spectrum. And you want yeah. to always be constantly progressing. Um, which is why I, lo- I love looking at it like a set of experiments. Even if it's two steps forward, one step back, it's like you, 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 have a, you don't just get comfortable. You're like, oh, I'm you know, at my place. Let me experiment with this thing. Let me do some observations, see how it makes me feel, what does it do to my metabolites, and then just kind of increment forward. You might take a step back, but then you learn something. I like to say, I don't know who said this, but in life, you either win or you learn. So <laughs> either way, you're winning. Yeah, um, I want to look at it that way. I love that. Yeah, that's a a great mindset to have. Um, You know, one thing I'm curious about, you, um, you know, you had a lot of success as soon as you started started on a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. Um, How did your doctor respond at that point? That's a complicated question. It depends which doctor. At this point, I had at least a dozen. But... um, I'd say globally, you know, when doctors, as as much as I think the keto community is frustrated with the medical system and does some doctor bashing, doctors really want to help people. Most go into medicine because they really care. And so when my doctors and when I think doctors in general see people improving, even if it's via a method that they wouldn't recommend, they're really happy for their patient. And my doctors and my family, everybody has been really happy for me and, you know, just cares that I'm doing better. So that's the main thing I'd like to say. Granted, there is a gap in understanding um, with physicians, with, with um, family, friends, everybody. So when you do what you have to do to get healthy, in my case, eating a lot of fat, people, just, people don't really get it because they haven't been pushed to do it. It's still not standard right. practice. I think it should be, but it's still not standard practice. So my, one of my doctors actually came and visited me. She was coming, passing through Oxford from Boston, and she dropped by. And she was like, Nick, why? Like, like I bought, I brought her. She had her little daughter, and we went to the fudge shop, like my old favorite fudge shop. And I bought her daughter fudge. And it's like, you know, Nick, I think it's weird that you're not having fudge. This is my doctor, <laughs> and she, she just she knew I was on a ketogenic diet, but she was very skeptical about it. And um, a lot of you know doctors have been the same way. Um, and same with my 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 you know friends and family. I still have this one of my best friends, amazing woman, and, and, and a nurse. Um, just doesn't really 
understand. She's so happy for me that I'm doing better, and she always, you know, expresses love and support. But she just doesn't really understand what a ketogenic diet is. She came over yesterday and brought me some like nice food, including like a juice. She's like, I don't know if you could have this. I know you, you're not doing any uh, sugar. I don't know if this is sugar in it. She hands me the juice. It's a it's a fruit and vegetable. She says 50 grams of sugar in the bottle. <laughs> and before she's like, you know, I made you this thing. It has honey in it. I'm pretty sure you can have honey because it's not a carb. I'm like, uh, honey's a carb. She's like, no, it's not. I'm like, yeah, it has some sugar in it. And she's like, really? I, I thought it was just honey. Like people, she's a nurse. People really like. I I don't mean to insult my friend. Again, she's a oh. lovely, lovely person. But it just shows the lack of understanding in she in in medicine because this thing these things aren't taught and. They need to become standard practice. And you can't really just straight up blame the doctors because in medical school, they don't get the education, just like people don't get the education. So how can you expect people to have the information if the doctors don't have it? And you can, how can you expect the doctors don't have it if nobody teaches it to him? So where does the buck stop, I guess, is the question. Right. And I think, honestly, public pressure and citizen scientists are kind of just moving the, the ball down the court slowly, slowly. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense that, you know, doctors want to help people, but how can they how can they help them with nutrition if they're not taught nutrition? Um yeah. that makes that definitely adds a lot of challenge into the yeah. equation. And um, you know, I'm grateful for people like you and for all the other kind of citizen scientists out there who are trying to push the envelope and um, you know, really get it out there that, hey, there are these options out there that seem to work for a great deal of people. Well, I'd flip it on you. I'd say I'm grateful for people like you because I can sit forever in my, you know, medical school classrooms at Harvard or my lab at Oxford and write up papers that nobody in the public ends up reading. Um, but we really need people to just kind of share stories and people to provide platforms for that. People like you, it's one of the reasons that I've started working with people like, you know, Thomas DeLauer. Um, you, you might know, like, he's not a scientist and maybe he doesn't get every fact right, but he shares stories and he gets people excited and informed so that they then go do their own research and take responsibility into their own hands. And so I think we just need to share more stories. As much as I love data, I want the double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, all of it. You have to think about, you know, what really inspires people to take action for themselves. And is, is no, there's no, you know, no perfect study really applies to any individual. The only thing that matters to you is the N equals one you do on yourself, the self-experiment and how that makes you feel. So just learning from other people and you having people on to talk about their different stories is, I think, one of the things that's really moving things forward. And hopefully doctors will catch wind of it sooner or later. Well, um, speaking of that self-experimentation, you know, and just going back to your carnivore diet experiment, mm-hmm. I don't, maybe you haven't been doing this long enough to comment. I don't know, but how, how is the, the carnivore experiment going? How long have you been trying it? Um, So I've been doing it for about a month. Um, It didn't start off that hot, and that is not a fault of the diet. That is a fault of me. Um, Because I I remember how I said before my my calprotectin went up because I got food poisoning. So I I had some – I made a liver pate with, like, next to raw liver and (laughs) then got really, really sick. Um, 
And, and, and then they, uh, I went to the hospital, to the ER, and, and they're like, you have this uh, Campylobacter jejuni infection. And, and, they, and then they're like, you know, it often comes from undercooked poultry. Have you any, had any undercooked poultry recently? I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> so that took about a week to recover from. But after that, it's actually been going really, really well. Now, one of the reasons, I, I tried it for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you um, two. But one was because I said, so even when you're in colitis remission, it's actually pretty common to have constipation in remission, which is kind of a, a, a kick in the nards, I guess, because it's like you're either with colitis, you're, you're in a flare and you're bleeding out your rear with terrible bloody diarrhea, or then you go into remission and then you have severe constipation. So the pendulum just swings the other way and you never get, you have like, like, like in months, like this one little like day period when you're like, oh, things are comfortable. And then it goes the other way. <laughs> but so that's been something I, I've had a little bit of trouble with for a while. And I've played with a lot of ways to, without using too many stimulant activators to kind of get around that. And there is some interesting literature on actually cutting out fiber completely as in a carnivore to help with constipation. I know standard wisdom is eat more fiber, but um, there's a great paper, and I can actually send you the link if you want to drop in the show notes. I think it's Ho et al. 2012, where basically they put participants who suffer from chronic constipation on a um, no-fiber diet, and all of them had um, resolved symptoms all 100% this never happens but 100% and 100% that stayed on it had to resolve symptoms and the way they explained it is you know with the analogy would be you know if you have a bunch of cars on the highway and like it's rush hour and there's a lot of traffic already why are you pushing more bulk into the system you need to let things clear out and um also also fiber can be abrasive there's different types of fiber as well so if you this is just talking to people in general. If you don't want to go carnivore, I realize it's extreme for a lot of people and you still have fiber. One thing to think about is avoiding soluble fibers, which slow down motility. They gel up and slow everything down, whereas insoluble fibers kind of bulk up and push things through. So insoluble fibers like chia and dark chocolate are each about 90% insoluble fibers, whereas things like shirataki noodles um, do not have shirataki noodles. They will make you constipated forever if you're prone for that they're like all soluble fiber um you will will stuff you back up and there's little things you can google like i didn't even i was playing at a point in time before i went carnivore with different avocados turns out there's a different fiber ratio in florida versus like haas in california so florida have 80 percent insoluble 20 percent soluble and haas in california are like 60 40 weird things like that wow. you can learn a lot from dr google you know yeah, I, I think so. i should have a degree from so my most valuable degree is not from Oxford or Harvard or Dartmouth. It's probably from YouTube. <laughs> you can learn so much on the internet. I mean, I cross-reference with PubMed, of course, but it's awesome that so much information is out there. But um, yeah, but back to carnivore. That's one reason I tried carnivore. And another reason was as a, um, a follow-up on a study I did on myself previously. I want to now do... There's no, there's no good literature on carnivore, and I, I always like to challenge my hypotheses. So right now I'm, in general... I believe Mediterranean keto is probably close to optimal form of keto. And I was a li- I'm a little bit skeptical about carnivore, but I'm like, you know, the, the true scientists, what they do is they challenge their hypotheses. They don't yeah. like try to find confirmational data. They actually challenge it. Like, here's what I believe. I'm going to really try to disprove it. If I can't disprove it, then I maintain what's called a null hypothesis. But I really have to try. 
And if I don't try, then I'm not being honest with myself as a scientist. So I'm like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to get some other people to do it with me. And I have some other people. And we're going to see how it affects our metabolism. These, you know, are different metabolic markers of health. Like, how does it genuinely do that? We'll do it in depth dive because that really hasn't been done yet. And um, so I'm, I'm interested to see what it does. And also, how can you optimize it? Like, my carnivore diet is not going to be the stand, or I don't know if you know the standard, but I'm not just eating ribeye and butter. Um, you know, I'm mixing in the salmon and the salmon caviar and also using some non-real carnivore oils. Like, what if I had some macadamia oil, olive oil, stuff like that? So I'll play with it. But just, it's a fun experiment, and it's fun to vary up the diet, and it's also kind of fun to eat, like, 12 egg omelets and stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. That... Indulgent. <laughs> so... Yeah, that does sound yeah. fun, and uh, I'm glad glad you're seeing some initial success from it. Um, you learn, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I know you are still working on your PhD at mm-hmm. Oxford, and after that, you are headed to Harvard to mm-hmm. medical school. Um, what are you? Um, is there anything specific, like a specialization that you're going into at Harvard Medical School, or um, can you just go into that a yeah. little bit? So uh, medical school is pretty general. It's like a liberal arts education where the first four years, you just do the general education. And then you go on to what's called residency, and that's when you start to specialize. So I'm going to do the general medical school education, and then where I think I want to end up I'm not really sure, but something with metabolic medicine, something that connects the pieces. I think that medicine right now, you know, we need specialization. We need experts, but it's so hyper-specialized. And now people usually have many diseases that you go to Dr. X to treat condition Y, and then they give you drug Z, which interferes with your other disease, drug Q, because doctors A, B, C, D aren't talking with another. And so you get things get really confused and so you can get um you need somebody to take a holistic perspective and that's not just a pcp i think it comes down to metabolism so i want to be in a position where i can really look at the whole patient maybe with a focus on their brain maybe i'll do metabolic medicine for neurodegenerative disease but i want to be able to incorporate like you know what are you doing in terms of sleep? What uh, supplements are you taking? What is your nutrition? What is your exercise pattern? Let's all optimize these things together to come up with a program that fits you as an individual. Let's look at your genetics too. So I had to find a way to feasibly, I think, um, look at the whole patient and it will be focused on a particular outcome. I think probably the brain. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is just, I think, the scariest and biggest upcoming pandemic. Um, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, the, the rate is going to triple. The In the U.S. alone, we're going to go from 5 to 15 million people with Alzheimer's. And the cost on the healthcare system is going to go from $300 billion to $1.1 trillion by 2050 if things aren't done, which that single disease will cripple the U.S. healthcare system. So just from an economic perspective, not even just health, we need to find a solution that works. And right now, there's not a single anything that has been shown to prevent the disease or slow progression. Yeah. So. Um, I know I'll give a shout out to a, a book that um, I like a lot, the, the Alzheimer's Antidote by Amy Berger. Um, 
I don't know if you've read that one, but that one's a really interesting look yeah. at um, low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets. Um, among other Amy lifestyle. I'm oh, you do. Her, so we we correspond a little bit. But I haven't read her book. I should read it. I have read a lot of books on that, but um, also more textbooks and papers. Um, <laughs> right. Listen to some podcasts. But yeah, you get something new from everyone. Everybody has their own hypothesis. Um, I really, I, I don't agree with everything Dale Bredesen says, but one thing that he does say that I think is very um, astute is that um, the brain is like a boat. And a brain with Alzheimer's disease is like a boat with 100 holes in the hole, and it's sinking. And the standard pharmacological approach, just because this is how Western medicine is built, is to, you know, find drugs that target single proteins and single pathways, which is like plugging one hole at a time. You will never prevent the boat from sinking. So you need something programmatic. So I think a low-carb diet is definitely part of it. That improves insulin sensitivity. Alzheimer's disease is also called um, type 3 diabetes. Yes. You know, it's, it's insulin resistance specifically in the brain is a key feature of Alzheimer's disease. You don't have to have diabetes. You don't have to be peripherally insulin resistant in the rest of your body. You can have insulin resistance just in the brain. Low-carb diets really help with that. And ketones have been shown to help with the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. It's not necessarily saying they'll prevent it. But um, ketogenic diets, for other reasons, I think would prevent neurodegenerative disease. I've written on the topic. Um, and, but then not just that, like you need good sleep. That's when you clear out a lot of the crap from your brain. You need a proper exercise pattern. Other things like saunas. There's some really interesting literatures on saunas. I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast the other day with Rhonda Patrick, who's I think super smart. And she was talking about some of this literature for saunas and Alzheimer's and some of the Finnish uh, studies. And they were, I forget what the odds ratios were, but people that use saunas more often had much, much lower rates of Alzheimer's controlled for things like, you know, weight and smoking and exercise and all that. And when you look at the mechanisms, it's actually like you can fit mechanisms to the population studies. So just to give an example with saunas, um, when you heat your body up, I don't know if people remember from like eighth grade biology or something, um, but but th- your body makes these things called heat shock proteins, which are chaperone proteins. So what chaperone proteins do is when, when your body produces proteins, they start out in a long chain and they have to fold up into whatever form they're supposed to take, whatever the proper form. And so chaperones help with this folding process. They make sure things fold properly. And when you heat the protein up, it can denature. It can break down and become the string again, and then that causes problems. And so the chaperone ensures that it folds properly, and when you stress your body, your body makes heat shock proteins, which are chaperones. They make sure things fold properly under heat stress. But here's the thing. The chaperone proteins will stick around. These heat shock proteins will stick around, and their job, again, is to help things fold properly. Now, in addition to insulin resistance, one of the things that contributes to neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, whatever, is misfolding protein. So in Alzheimer's, it's tau and amyloid. You may have heard of amyloid plaques or tau tangles. In Parkinson's, it's alpha-synuclein. And so if you go in a sauna and you heat your body up, you get these heat shock proteins, these chaperones for the heat, but they also help proteins fold properly, presumably, that would otherwise cause these neurodegenerative diseases. So it's a way of like training your body and you know, that's the mechanism. And then there's human data that shows a correlation. No, it's not a 
randomized controlled trial. There's some that are wouldn't be feasible to conduct. You can't really have two groups and say, you use a sauna four times a week for 30 years and we'll see what happens with you. It's kind of difficult. Um, yeah. But it's just exciting. I'm talking a lot. I thought that was an interesting tidbit. I like to go on tangents, but the point is we need a program system for these diseases, especially brain disease. It's about together. I'm sorry. You, you were breaking up just a little bit um, at the uh, end there on my side. I, yeah. Just the last yeah, like, I've lost 15 your seconds. Visual, yeah, I, I stopped oh, my video. I was just, just saying to, after... Yeah, no worries. I just after... Um, I'll stop my video too. I just after... Can you hear me? I can hear you. Cool. After rambling about heat shock proteins, I was just trying to tie it back to the point, which is that for these diseases, particularly brain diseases, we need multifaceted approaches and to look at um, whole systems and whole patients. Yeah. So. That that makes sense to me. Everything, everything is connected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it... it makes sense to look at things systematically. And on that uh, point, I want to ask you about, um, you know, you had ulcerative colitis and you've seen major improvements there. Mm -hmm. Um, You also were diagnosed before that with osteoporosis. Um, Mm -hmm. Is, have you had any indication one way or the other on, um, your osteoporosis and how that has responded to uh, your ketogenic diet. Yes. So the thing about bones is they take a really, really long time to turn over. So one would not expect huge improvements in a short period of time. Having said that, people are also worried that cutting out carbs would negatively impact bones. And I can tell you that my bones have not negatively been impacted since starting. I've had no fractures. Um, and some of my spine has actually increased in bone density. Um, my hip and my femur have stayed stable. My spine is increasing relatively rapidly. Admittedly, um, I have been on medications for this. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking Western medicine. <laughs> I'm into nutrition, but you know, drugs are still important. So it's probably more the effect of the drugs. I'm not, I don't know that ketogenic diet would help with osteoporosis in particular, but it hasn't hurt my bones, which is a point to make. Um, also, my particular case of osteoporosis is a, I'm a very bizarre uh, person to have osteoporosis. Usually it's a disease of like postmenopausal women. Um, so a young, otherwise healthy guy, at least when I got diagnosed, that was very weird. Weird to the point that um, in 2019, a case report in Frontiers in Endocrinology was actually written on me. Turns out I was the first documented case of uh, a new genetic mutation in a gene called LRP5, which contributed to my condition. You can look this, the paper up on PubMed even. Um, so, so I'm a little bit of a bizarre case, and there is a genetic underlying pathology that kind of interacted with my running to cause it. So um, it's complicated. My bones haven't gotten worse is, this, is the story, and my spine's gotten better. Okay. Well, yeah, that's really interesting, and we'll make sure to uh, link to that, um, to that report in the show notes. 
At this point in the conversation, we thought we had wrapped up the talk around Nick's osteoporosis. However, less than a week later, Nick reached back out. He had new results to share about his osteoporosis. Let's go to those results now. Here's Nick. So just to clarify for your uh, listeners, Joe, we're now re-recording this uh, portion of the podcast about, what was it, a week? Yeah, after, yeah, it was about a, yeah. After, after the last after. review. So this, this portion regarding bone health, which is quite an interesting area with regards to ketogenic diet, because not a lot is known about how carb uh, elimination affects bone. And some people have suggested that it's actually bad for bone that you need carbs to support thyroid. And there's actually a little bit of literature out there that short-term ketogenic diets decrease bone turnover markers, which is bad. But again, these are short-term prior to adaptation, so nobody really knows. Um, And I was saying when we recorded the first time that I don't really have much information on my bones um, since starting a ketogenic diet because bones take so long to turn over. Now, as it happens... I had gotten um, my first DEXA scan, so bone density scan, since really starting the ketogenic diet um, a couple days before we spoke. And the results came back very recently, which honestly surprised me. Um, I feel like I'm just talking at end, so feel feel free to interject. Oh, no, this is great. This but, um, is uh, one of the questions I had asked about, and you didn't have much information at the time. And then it was, you know, like a day later, you're like, hey, yeah. got some well, more it info. Was, it was exciting. So um, my bones have improved, which is really exciting. Um, I can give numbers just to clarify and explain the numbers I'm going to give. Um, they refer to standard distribution. So if people imagine a bell curve. Um, I'm really far on the left side of that bell bell curve, like in that tiny little portion, or at least I was. My bone density is really, really low relative to what it should be for my gender and age. Um, So those are called like T-scores and Z-scores, the number of standard deviations you are below the average and the average for your age. And I started out when I was diagnosed with, like in my spine, a um, T and Z-score both of like negative 3.3. Which is which is in the bottom like point, well three standard deviations I think is in the bottom point three percent, so bottom wow. three out of a thousand for bone density. So you are an outlier in a very uh, very bad way. In a very bad way. Um, since then it's improved. Now, admittedly, I am on medications for this. Um, oh. I was on one called Forteo and then one on Prolia. I actually spent the whole summer at MGH literally researching sequential treatments for um, osteoporosis. And so I, I, if I'm to pat myself on the back, I'm, I might be the first person that has done this, the first, sorry, first young male that has done this sequential treatment, although that's not a very big cohort to, to choose from. But anyway, getting to the, the, the exciting stuff, I found that, um, or the DEXA scan found that uh, over the last year, all my bone sites have improved. So they measure your spine, your hip, and your femur. Okay. And all of them improve. My um, spine um, score is now negative 1.6. Remember, at the beginning, it was not in the beginning of um, keto, but at the beginning of my diagnosis, it was negative 3.3. My hip, um, my right hip is negative 1.5. My left hip is negative 1.4. And my femur is negative 
1.2 on the right and negative 1.7 on the left. So technically, I don't have osteoporosis by definition anymore, which is really exciting oh. for me. Um, now, to speak specifically about keto, because you know it's important to give medications their credit, um, oh. I've been progressing on the spine mostly on the medications. Now, the reason that's notable is because there are different types of bone. Um, there is what's called cortical bone, which is like the dense shell of your bone. And then there's the spongy, like spiderweb-like bone on the inside called trabecular bone. And different sites around the body have different um, ratios of cortical and trabecular bone. So, for example, the femur, ha- the femur shaft has a lot of cortical bone. So you can imagine a thick shell with not much trabecular bone on the inside, whereas the spine has almost all trabecular, and there's a very thin shell of cortical bone on the outside. You can imagine that. The femur is like a pipe, and the spine is you know, more complex. It has more web-like bone. Okay. So based on how these medications work, the pathways they act upon, the cells they act upon, and, and what I noticed in, in my progression, the preferential um, boosting of spine bone mass density on these medications... I think that um, they primarily affect trabecular bone without much impact on cortical. So um, over, so I was um, diagnosed in 2016. I think I said that correctly in the podcast earlier, but my first fracture was in 2014. I was diagnosed in 2016. Okay. And um, then for the next three years, for example, my femur, which is mostly cortical, it didn't budge. It started at negative 2.2. And then in 2017, it was negative 2.3. Another scan, 2017, it was negative 2.2, then 2.2, then 2.2, then negative 2.3 before starting the ketogenic diet. So it has not budged from the negative 2.2, negative 2.3 range. On the ketogenic diet, it just bounced up to negative 1.5. And I've been on the drugs since before that. So this is the only new intervention, um, which is notable. And there seems to be a little acceleration of gain in the hip, which is also a little bit more trabecular. Not, I'm sorry, a little bit more cortical, not as much as the femur, but, um, but a lot more than the spine. So now I'm seeing kind of for the first time gains in these other sites, my hip and my femur, um, suggesting to me that the low-carb approach and cleaning up my nutrition just in general is having a more global beneficial impact on my bones. Additive to the drugs, which are still helping, but they were primarily helping the spine. And this, um, I, I think it's, you know, a, a, it's exciting. It's an N equals one, but um, it's compelling to me. I honestly was just looking for things not to get worse because people, by doctors, the biggest worry for the keto is like, okay, you know, it's good for your brain. We know that. It's yeah. good for your colitis. We know that. Right. Your bones are like a question. There's not much out there. And it, like if you, you've lost a little bit of weight because you've cut out carbs um, and, you know, your thyroid's gone down, although there's a the whole thing with thyroid sensitivity and I think my metabolism that actually boosted, but we can go on that tangent maybe at another time. But the takeaway, now I'm rambling, is my bones did improve. And um, in a way that suggests global improvement in both types of bone, trabecular and cortical, and that is consistent with this just overarching theme and anecdotes that this helps. Like low carb helps with whatever 
ails you. It's kind of surprising. I, I'm surprised. It's it's truly fascinating, and it, it's kind of mind-boggling that um, the same intervention, a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, can impact so many different things. And you know, now it seems to even be affecting you to the bone. And, <laughs> Good pun. Yeah. No, I, it, it is. And, and it, I think it goes to show like how really little is known about just the scope of the mechanisms. I mean, people talk about, you know, improving insulin sensitivity. I don't really think that there's go, much going on in the bones in terms of osteoporosis and insulin sensitivity, at least in me. And you know, my, my CRP was always low. So there's not the inflammation probably causing the bone issue. And honestly, I mean, the paper that was published on me, um, in 2019 in frontiers and endocrinology about my bones proposed it was a genetic interaction with environment. So how does diet then play into that? It, it's, um, it's just so much unknown. And that's almost what, that's what makes this really exciting that so much has been learned about low carb nutrition and health in the past few years when there's really been focused research on it. I can't wait to see what comes out in the next 10, 20 years. It's exciting. Uh, It really is. Um, There's so much more to learn, but in the meantime, I'm excited for you, glad for you and your health. And this is just a a really fascinating thing to learn. And it's awesome that uh, we're able to get it in here to the podcast. And now we pick back up with the original recording. I do have um, have a question too. I think a lot of people, they hear about a high-fat diet and their first concern is, well, what's that going to do to my cholesterol? Yeah. Um, so I wonder, you know, I know I've got my own thoughts on um, on the validity or maybe lack thereof in um, in focusing too much on cholesterol, but it is a very, very, very common concern. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts about uh, cholesterol levels uh, when eating a uh, low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet? Yeah. I'm really glad you asked that question. In fact, um, I recently had a paper in Frontiers in Medicine entitled, uh, A Standard Lipid Panel is Insufficient for the Care of a Patient on a Ketogenic Diet. Basically saying that, you know, when you go to the doctor and you get your standard lipid panel, which includes cholesterol and things like triglycerides or blood fat, it misrepresents what's going on, particularly when you're eating a ketogenic diet. Um, And so the way I'd like to kind of explain that is through an analogy about boats. I've adapted this from Dave Feldman's analogy about cholesterol and boats. So the first point to make. People talk about LDL cholesterol. Let's focus on LDL cholesterol because it's what's thought of as bad cholesterol. Again, bad in quotes. So LDL cholesterol first um, is not cholesterol, nor is HDL cholesterol. LDL and HDL cholesterol, they stand for low and high density lipoprotein particles. They are boats that carry cholesterol and triglycerides. So the, the... the triglycerides, the fat, are kind of, I would think of them as the main passenger for our purposes. So you have these LDL particles that are made by your liver, these boats, these LDL boats, and they're supposed to carry fat to your muscle tissues and throughout your body to your other tissues so that they can burn the fat as fuel. You know, fat is fuel. And cholesterol is also in these particles. So you can think of cholesterol coming along for the ride. You, 
Dave Feldman calls the um, uh, the cholesterol the life you know jackets or lifeboats, and then the triglycerides the passengers. And so what happens when you go low carb and you go keto is you're burning a lot more fat for fuel. And so you need a way to get that fat, like from your liver, from your, your um, or you know your system into your muscle tissues. And so what you have to do is you have to send out more boats because you need to burn more fat. You need to ship more cargo. And so you have a strong boat economy. Your LDL might go up. It doesn't in everybody, but if it does go up on keto, it's because you have more LDL boats shipping more fat to your tissues. And then they return to the liver and get taken back up. And that's good. That's strong boat economy. The difference of a standard Western diet, making your cholesterol go up, is, is you're not actually burning fat for fuel. So in the second scenario, where you're eating a standard diet, you know, Western diet, carbs, and, and sugar, what happens is, is it's, like, it's like sugar is like little glaciers in the river of your bloodstream. And the LDL boat's moving along, and it hits a glacier, and it gets damaged, and then it gets small and dense and sinks to the bottom. And that's what causes heart disease or plaque buildup. It's the LDLs getting damaged by the sugar glaciers, a process called glycation, and oxidation, which prevents the LDL actually from get ta- getting taken back up to the liver, and they sink to the bottom. So you can see in, there's two different scenarios where the LDL, this, quote, bad cholesterol, will go up. One is on a ketogenic diet where you actually have a strong economy of boats where they're shipping the faster tissues. And a second is um, when you're eating a standard diet and you're – your LDL is getting oxidized, glycated, and then it getting small and dense. It can't be taken up by the liver again, and it sinks to the bottom. That's the analogy. Now, you can actually see the difference on what's called a subfractionated lipid panel. So not just getting your total LDL, not just throwing all the boats into one pot, but looking at what boats are healthy and moving cargo and what boats are damaged and sink to the bottom. And so what you want to look for is a lot of large, big, fluffy LDL. Those are the healthy kind and fewer small and medium. So that's called um, like small, dense, oxidized. Um, it's called, the good pattern is called pattern A. Bad pattern is pattern B. And so just as a case in point, when I went keto, um, just checking you're still there. I can't see you, so I'm, I'm, I'm listening for auditory yep. feedback. Oh, I'm still okay. here. Cool. Um, Want to make sure we weren't disconnected. But for example, when I went keto, my LDL, at this time, I remember my health was not good. It was 90. I'm trying to remember. It was about, it was about 90. Um, and then I went keto, and it went up to th- over 300, about 320. My total, my total cholesterol went to 450 milligrams per deciliter, which made some of my doctors have uh, a heart attack themselves. But um, <laughs> when you actually looked at my subfractionation, it was really interesting. Um, as I continued to stay on keto, my 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 L my large LDL continued to go up. It got it gets super high, but my small and medium cholesterol, the atherogenic forms, despite my overall cholesterol going through the roof, over tripling, um, my LDL over tripling, um, my large cholesterol was driving the entire thing. This healthy cholesterol, whereas the medium and small actually went down. They didn't even go up a little bit. They didn't stay stable. They went down relative to baseline. So my LDL over tripled, but my small and medium went down. And my large was driving the entire difference when you look at what's called the subfractionation. But you wouldn't see this 
on a standard lipid panel because standard lipid panels only show all LDL as a group. And what people assume is they assume standard diet because studies are done on people with standard diets. Um, and so they assume that you're a small and medium are going up and that's bad. And so because doctors are generally ordering the standard panels, they're only seeing the LDL group together. And it doesn't represent what's really going on on a low-carb diet, which is your LDL is going up because you have a strong boat economy. Your LDL is going out, bringing fat, and then going back to the liver and get taken, get taken back up. It doesn't have time to sit in your arteries and cause heart disease. Um, so does that dis distinction make sense? Do you have any questions that I maybe I can clarify something for your listeners? Um, no, that I think that does make sense. And um, did you, um, along with your LDL going up, and mm -hmm. you were a hyper responder, you know, your yeah. your LDL really jumped up high, which yeah. I'm sure did really alert your, um, you know, it probably threw off a lot of conventional doctors. Um, I'm curious, did your did your triglycerides and HDL change yes my triglycerides um went down to 40 so they say really good is below 150 mine went from 80 to 40 um i think they're about 40 now my hdl which is already pretty good i think it was 30 or 40 um it's actually now like 120 if i do on the cardio check sometimes it doesn't measure um and uh, the better actually measure than HDL cholesterol is something called HDLP large. It's the particle count. And they cut off the measurements on the, a lot of the panels at like 7,000. I'm now at 13,000. It's one of the best measures for low cardiovascular risk. And it's actually just, as I say keto, it just kind of like slowly creeps up. I think the adaptations huh. continue for at least about 20 months. This is a study by Jeff Volick called FASTER which suggests that, you know, even, you know, although the main adaptations will happen in a month or two, your body can might continue to improve for a couple of years. Anyway, besides the point, um, overall, my panel really improved. My HDL went up, my large LDL went up, my small and medium went down, my triglycerides went down. Um, I have gotten a functional test of plaque in my arteries called coronary artium calcium scan. Ivor Cummings talks a lot about this. My score is zero, which means no notable black buildup. Now, admittedly, I'm young, even being on with ha having high cholesterol for a while, be, you know, on a ketogenic diet, if there were findings, it probably wouldn't have manifested. So that's a caveat, but it is zero, which is a good thing. And so I'll continue to trace it. Um, but, but the point being, and, and we, I can send you a link to the paper to put in the show notes. And also, I have digestions of the paper, like blog posts I've written up with analogies to kind of simplify it. Um, but point being, you know, I, I really wouldn't worry. I'm pausing now because I'm trying to think about how to, how to put a disclaimer to this. I don't think I need to since I don't have a medical license to lose yet. <laughs> so I, I don't think I need to say this is not medical advice. Yeah. Because this is not medical advice. I wouldn't right. worry about cholesterol on a um, a keto diet. I mean, I just I said earlier, I, I'm happy to have a 12 egg omelet. Like, <laughs> also the the cholesterols found in egg yolks are not the cholesterols found in your your arteries. We can talk about different cholesterol salts and esters, but the the type of cholesterol actually found in the arteries is very suggestive that the it's not coming 
from cholesterol in our diets actually coming from a plaque forming, which occurs because of other reasons, but basically a plaque, a clot. It's just a clot in your arteries. So you're probably better off just eating lots of eggs, but then also having vitamin C and collagen and not eating sugar. Uh, we could talk for another hour about that, but no, on, I, I'm, I'm sure. not worried about lipids personally. And I obviously am very health conscious. So I always like to, to play cautious. You know, that's why I'm like, oh, high monounsaturated fat, low poly, low omega-6, maybe wash saturated fat, even though people say it's not dangerous because I have aflatoxin. I am pretty conservative and I'm not worried about cholesterol. I'll leave it at that. That's that's a very, uh, very interesting and uh, very experienced perspective uh, speaking there. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned, you've mentioned a lot of, um, a lot of papers already, but mm-hmm. do you have any resources that you can recommend to listeners who want to research, um, you know, research any of the things we've talked about today, anything from, cholesterol to neurodegenerative uh, diseases to ulcerative colitis or osteoporosis. Um, yeah. I, I think I'm going to list some papers for each of those conditions um, okay. for people that have, you know, science background. And then I'll tie it up for, for people that don't, because I, um, like I said, I think a lot of these things have basic underlying pathologies. And so rather than say, go read all these literature papers, I think it's more about just educating yourself and finding what works for you. So with the, the colitis, there's not much actual literature out there because people, just because the studies haven't been conducted because it's kind of like a stigma around keto. The lipids paper that I mentioned actually is about also a case of somebody curing colitis with, or not curing, reversing colitis with keto. So it's buried in there. And there's tons of anecdotes among doctors um, with respect to the constipation and gut stuff, that Ho et al. 2012 paper is somewhere to start. Um, then with Alzheimer's, man, there's so many things with that in keto. A famous case report for people without too much background is by Mary Newport et al. 2015, where this, this, she put her husband on a, a, a ketogenic diet. Uh, he had Alzheimer's. And just to like, you can read a story. You don't need technical background. Um, and she gave him like MCT oils, coconut oil, gave him a ketone ester at some point, and his turnaround was remarkable. It's it's really written in a personable way. Personable way. There's a lot of research out there. I found the 2020 PNAS paper by um, I think Clark is the senior author about brain network stability. Really interesting because they did ketogenic diet, ketones themselves, glucose, and standard diet, and they had this new marker of brain aging. That was a fun paper to read. Um, osteoporosis in keto, again, because of the long turnaround time and the new popularity of keto, it's, uh, not too much out there. What other disease with other diseases I had to, to mention? Um, no, not, um, yeah. So nothing else if you don't have it. Yeah. Have I, I have a, a, a million papers on the brain that I'd like to say, but the point, the more to the point, all these diseases. I would strongly contest come down to basic things like oxidative stress, inflammation, um, insulin resistance. And you can improve that with proper nutrition, a well-formulated ketogenic diet. 
And the place I would start maybe to start looking at some options for recipes and to see how good keto can be is a woman named Martina Slareyova. Her, um, uh, her website, she is the founder of the Keto Diet app. She's a professional cookbook author. She's written eight, now working on her ninth cookbook on um, Mediterranean 2.0, Mediterranean ketogenic diet. So uh, I'm privileged enough to be a we're collaborating on that actually. So um, that'll be a, that's a fun little project we're doing. But her website has a ton of really cool recipes, all the you know macronutrient breakdowns, also blog posts. I've posted a, a few blog posts there. So hundreds of things to look at uh, and and some blog posts to learn. And I also mentioned I work with Thomas DeLauer, who I think is a he's a really genuine sweet guy. Yes, he has to do some marketing. People hate on him a little bit that for his channel. And once you can get the, past his is his muscles, I have to admit. One of the reasons I re- reached out to him is I felt really bad. I totally stereotyped him on looking at uh, looking at him like, oh, this is totally bro science. He has some good content. Um, so go to, if, you, if you're into YouTube videos, he explains things quite nicely. Watch videos that appeal to you on his YouTube channel. Check out Martina's blog for recipes you find interesting. Read some blog posts. And I would start with those two resources for the layperson just because I'm I know those two people personally. I know that they're very genuine people and they generally produce good content. Um, and and then just good luck on your self-experimentations because that's what uh, it comes down to. Well, that's, um, yeah, those are a lot of really good resources. And uh, for anyone who wants to uh, check this out in the show notes, um, you know, I'll, I'll have links to all of these things there. Um, so that'll be at youcuredwhat.com slash podcast slash Nick. Um, but um, Nick, I've got another question, a question mm-hmm. that we ask everyone here on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Now that you've improved your health, what's one thing you enjoy doing that you couldn't do before? That's a very good question. <laughs> and I do know my answer. Um enjoy food i think when you have a condition like colitis and constipation for that matter or or irritable bowel syndrome of any sort food really becomes a terror like you just don't want to eat because you know you have to go to the bathroom or that you won't be able to go to the bathroom and it flips the script where like you know that nice whatever let's just say you're on a standard western diet that nice bowl of ice cream should be a pleasure for me that will be terror and what becomes the pleasure is just having a nice poop. Like, like, <laughs> and that's weird. It's something most people take for granted. And that's kind of a sad thing that you fear food, you fear meals, you really fear social eating. And you just want to be able to go to the bathroom like, well. And now uh, on a ketogenic diet, that was, that's a huge component of life, eating. And now I feel like I can really enjoy food and my bowels function better. And so to go to a point where like a cracker scared me like Lord Voldemort used to when I was like six, I hated the back of Quirrell's head. It was terrifying. <laughs> but the cracker used to scare me, and now I, there's you know I'm not eating carbs, but there's so many things I can indulge in, like avocado fries and olive oil mayo or omelets, steak, salmon, whatever. I feel like you just you really can just have fun with it. Um, you know, different fat bombs and stuff, bacon and goat cheese. All the things. Now I'm going to make myself hungry. But um, <laughs> yeah, just just changing from making having food be a fear to being able to go enjoy food, I think is the biggest thing I've gained back. Um, 
which is not insignificant. Well, um, yeah, that is a very significant thing. And, um, you know, I'm so, so glad for you that you've been able to have those improvements and that you can enjoy food again. Um, Nick, for anyone who wants to learn more, how can people reach you? Hmm. Um, I've started using Twitter a little bit more uh, recently. I've made a Twitter um, quite recently. Um, I'm at Nick Norwitz, N-I-C-K-N-O-R-W-I-T-Z. And every day, kind of a staple, my, my Twitter's all about nutrition and health. And a staple of um, my Twitter is every day I post a fun fact to kind of try to engage people in nutrition. So it might be like, oh, you know, an example would be, do you know why salmon are pink? Salmon are pink because of this antioxidant molecule called astaxanthine. Um, it's one of the most powerful antioxidants in nature, and it's there to protect the really healthy omega-3 fats in the fish. So when buying fish, think the redder, the better. Redder salmon are better salmon, in particular, um, wild Alaskan sockeye are the best. Now, I would pare that down because that would not fit in 280 characters, but stuff like that. Every day, there's a new fun fact about whatever food you're interested in. It'll be about cheese or meat or spices, chocolate, macadamia, garlic, whatever. Um, and, and, and I can send you some, maybe five or so examples to post in the show notes. Um, but you can find me at, at Twitter where I post studies and I post stuff like that. And then uh, I'm not going to say my email here because I try to manage the number of emails I have coming. I get like a couple hundred a day at this point. But I will divulge that if you are the kind of person that goes through the effort of looking up papers and are really into it, in papers, the corresponding author's email is listed. So I'll leave it at that. I'm not that hard a person to find the contact of uh, if you really want to get in touch with me. And if you have a, a, a real question concerning your health, I'm always happy to try to help. Um, that's uh, that's amazing, and I can vouch for um, I don't know for the fun back and forth that you get into on Twitter. I've enjoyed some of those fun facts, and um, yeah, I've enjoyed your content on there. Um, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. Um, do you have anything else you want to? Uh, to bring up here in closing um no nothing that pops to mind thank you for having me on very much and um thank you for doing this having people on having them share their stories like i said earlier i think this is something that you know is super important for just getting the word out and getting people to think and um and, and move the ball down the field so thank you yeah thank you nick thank you for listening to you here and what? Join us again soon for another story of healing. <laughs>